I did spend a good six to eight months um, sort of um, bearing through this decision, spoke to uh, many folks within academia, you know, at Mount Sinai, elsewhere, many recognizable names in cardiology. I spoke to people who went off to industry and had come back to academia. Um, so it wasn't an easy decision. I don't want to say that I took it very lightly and just switched over and I, you know, all's been happy well since then. But it really was a decision that if I moved now, which was four years ago now, uh, that I had a shot of getting to somewhere where I could have real impact on healthcare in a different way in the next 10, 15 years. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this episode, actually, I would credit um, Saurav Chatterjee. Uh, Saurav, if you're listening, um, you know, we're, we're giving you the props here. Um, Saurav is a, is a great friend of mine. He's an interventional cardiologist um, with the Northfeld system, and he recommended uh, that I should get Samir Bansilal on board as one of our guests um, because Samir would offer uh, a unique perspective um, you know, from someone who had a very successful career as an academic cardiologist. I actually remember... Uh, meeting Samir at uh, one of the young investigator forums that Dr. Bono organizes uh, for for Northwestern, uh, it, you know, and you know Samir will correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. It's the Northwestern Cardiovascular Young Investigators Forum, and you know Samir is published with Dr. Fuster. I mean, he's he's a New England Journal of Medicine author, and from a profile like uh, like I just mentioned or just described, he has successfully. Uh, you know, transitioned his career uh, with uh, with pharma, and I think uh, he obviously brings in a, a tremendous amount of perspective. Um, so that if any one of us wants to emulate and and think about possibilities and opportunities uh, for a career in in pharmaceutical industry, then you know Samir would be a great resource, and obviously his path may be a model for someone who wants to follow uh, this career path. So. Samir is, actually is the executive director uh, for the cardiovascular and for the renal enterprise for the for, for Bayer Pharmaceuticals in the U.S. And uh, without much further ado, Samir, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you so much, Ankur. I really appreciate you having me on. And obviously, uh, let me echo that uh, kudos to Saurabh because he is a great connector. Uh, I connected with him a long time back when he reached out, I think as a resident or a fellow, actually, we did a paper together. 
so that's for sort of a blast from a past, and he's obviously kept in touch. Uh, as you as you can see, he it's a small world eventually. Um, so I'm glad to do this, and I think the the motivation for him to reach out for this also came from the fact that um, I had recently um, sort of put out a call on Twitter to say that there are other folks who might be interested in this kind of a transition. I'd be happy to chat. Um, and he sort of brought up the point that there wasn't any systematic resource or even an initial sense of how you might go about it, what does it entail, sort of the do's, don'ts, and the myths. And so I was hoping, uh, I'm, I'm glad he managed to convince you to utilize, obviously, your platform. Congratulations to you. You're beyond 50 podcasts and doing so well with this. Um, that uh, might be able to get a little bit of the flavor of what to expect out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's our privilege to have uh, someone with your background uh, talk to us and our audience and our listeners about, you know, how you uh, transitioned from an academic career into a career uh, in, in pharmaceutical industry. So let me ask you um, as to when, you know, you think this happened for you in terms of when were the seeds of a possibility of a career with pharmaceutical industry? you know, were sown in your path uh, because, you know, you were, you know, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you were, you know, going up the ranks in, in terms of being a very successful academic cardiologist and, you know, having great mentors in, in Dr. Fuster. Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a mix of things. Uh, I think the goal at the end of the day is not different for me as it is for you, which is that we're all here to have impact in our line of work. And I would say, I think, uh, just to paint a picture, you know, when I was working with uh, Dr. Fuson, I started working with him in my residency days. So it was nearly a two decades long association. I think at the point that I left, um, you know, to, to what you cited earlier, in a couple of New England Journal papers, had worked with the Timmy study group. So had the unique distinction of working and learning from both Dr. Fuson and Dr. Braunwald had been involved with uh, presenting late-breaking trials both at AHA, at ESC. So I think from the perspective of the things that you might do as an academic, I felt like I got to the first rung on everything. I, I got a flavor for everything. I would have probably done more of everything in the next 10, 15 years if I had sort of stayed. Um, and so from that perspective, that, that was sort of part one, which was, you know, it'll be more of the same. Uh, the second big factor, obviously, was when you work with somebody like Dr. Fuster, at some point you have the realization that you're not going to be that person. Um, you know, he is obviously an extremely unique individual. There's a reason he is who he is. Um, and I think I was pretty much joined at the hip in a way that for me to start over again sort of felt like, you know, starting a whole new line of work. And so that was another sort of uh, factor in there. But I think the the other, um, at the same time, contemporaneous things were things like uh, Jess Mega, who was with me at Timmy Study Group as an attending, had just moved uh, to Google as as the chief medical officer. Um, when you thought about people like Rob Califf, who everyone in the cardiovascular community knew, went off to the FD and suddenly he was a household name um, across the U.S., or you consider somebody at the same time, Vasner Simon became the chief executive officer of Novartis. And he was a physician who had worked up the medical ladder within the company, had done really good global health, vaccines-related work, and was now in a situation where he might be able to impact 
health, health policy globally. And so when you took these three different sort of factors, they came to a head for me. And the opportunity was really based on some of the clinical trial work I was doing. I was speaking for a couple of, um, you know, companies for either atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis, atrial fibrillation, diabetes, the areas of work that were my academic and research focus. That sort of lent to these opportunities. So it was sort of, you know, maybe in some ways a perfect storm, you might want to call it. I did spend a good six to eight months um, sort of um, bearing through this decision, spoke to uh, many folks within academia, you know, at Mount Sinai, elsewhere, many recognizable names in cardiology. I spoke to people who went off to industry and had come back to academia. Um, so it wasn't an easy decision. I don't want to say that I took it very lightly and just switched over and I, you know, all's been happy well since then. But it really was a decision that if I moved now, which was four years ago now, uh, that I had a shot of getting to somewhere where I could have real impact on healthcare in a different way in the next 10, 15 years. So, you know, in my mind, I sort of painted the picture that I could be maybe a chief of cardiology in 10 to 15 years, or I could be somewhere in a, you know, a pharmaceutical company where I might maybe have some impact on health policy globally. So that was the trade-off in my mind, and that's why I decided to make that leap. Uh, no, no, terrific answer. I mean, Samir, it's... Um... And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think anytime you make a decision where um, you sort of have not thought about a career path or a trajectory, you know, growing up, uh, you know, through medical school, residency, fellowship, and then working with the stalwarts like you've worked with, like, you know, Dr. Braunwald and Dr. Fuster, I mean, just world-class uh, clinical investigators and, and trialists. Um, and I mean, Dr. Fuster has so many hats, you know, it's it's hard to describe him in in one word or, you know, maybe in one sentence. Um, but, you know, I think it's, so what I was saying was that anytime you want to transition to a path that you've not thought about, um, it, it calls for a lot of introspection and, you know, a lot of, you know, having those real honest and deep conversations with yourself and also with your mentors. And, you know, thank you for describing how you went back and forth and how you really sort of, had to maybe put put in thought, if not put on paper, you know, what your trajectory would look like. Um, so if you don't mind me asking, when was this happening for you in terms of, like, were you still early career faculty uh, or w would you have considered yourself mid-career when you decided to have this have this transition? Well, I left in my fifth year. So I would say formally, I would still be at the verge of transitioning from early to mid-career. So like I said, it was at the point where, you know, so, so soon after I joined Sinai in 2013, we had an AHA, SFRN grant, you know, did some really wonderful work there. It's even an Amazon movie, actually, The Resilient Heart that Dr. Fuster, you know, and his team put together. And, um, you know, when you go, get to the point where the, that grant was beginning to wrap up, you're sort of thinking what comes next? What's going to be something that's as or larger impactful? And, you know, extension of that work to me wasn't a full realization of what I had prepared for in terms of my training. Um, so the global health work was sort of complementary. I've, you know, in my uh, career sort of switched in working with imaging related tools or drugs. Basically, um, I consider myself from a purist perspective as somebody who trained for scientific investigation and clinical trials. And I really wasn't married to any particular area in terms of what I might investigate or what tools might be involved as endpoints. And so in my mind, I felt like it was time to move on to something else. 
and the opportunity didn't seem sort of staring me in the face. And so that sort of led to that introspection phase. I think the hardest part in that was that um, maybe a year and a half or so before I left, I had this wonderful opportunity along with uh, Jeff Mechanic, who was at that point the outgoing AAC president to actually start a cardiometabolic clinic on, you know, sounds cliche, close to Fifth Avenue on, you know, Mount Sinai has a facility. It really was a fantastic learning and a clinical experience to have a cardiologist and an endocrinologist in the same space. As you know, that field has exploded in the last couple of years. It really was a great learning experience, uh, very fulfilling from the clinical perspective. That was the big one for me, um, you know, and I managed to keep a portion of the clinical care piece because I did not uh, want to sort of let go of my identity as a physician at the end of the day. So I'm thankful to my uh, bosses at Bayer as well, who've been very supportive of me being able to do that. So I still have the privilege of being able to see patients at the Veterans uh, Medical Center in the Bronx, um, thanks to the chief there as well, Dr. Ang. Uh, so that sort of, you know, in my mind, keeps me somewhat complete and sane because I was not prepared. And, you know, m- many people leave that behind happily, are ready to move on to a whole different path. Uh, but that still feels important to me. So I've kept it. A lot of people do it. I know uh, many of the folks on the West Coast, people who are in Boston, in the industry, or even in the financial uh, healthcare space, actually do manage to keep some clinical time within the Harvard system or in the Stanford system. So there are ways. I think the reason I I say this is that some people struggle with the idea of training as a physician their whole life and then leaving that behind. And, you know, you can sort of have your cake and eat it too, if I can put it that way. Yeah, no, terrific. So, uh, Samir, tell us some of the um, pleasant surprises and some of the not-so-pleasant surprises (laughs) <laughs> that you've had in your transition. I mean, what? So, so again, you know, th- thank you for sharing that the the fact that you still have the physician component to your to your life, and, and you know, that's very refreshing to to hear from you because, you know, like you said, I mean, if you train for years and years and years, year, years on end, to be a physician and a clinician, it's really hard to let go of that identity because you know you sort of identify yourself as that as that person so i'm i'm glad that that is still feasible for you but you know wearing uh, wearing on the industry hat um what ha- what have been some of the not so pleasant surprises for you yeah so I, I think i would say you know i think everything that you hear about corporate america and the bureaucracy and especially for big pharma on that end is true so things do move slowly, you know, it's sort of like trying to change the direction of the Titanic. The The upside is that you do know that if you have an idea that is meritorious, that there will be, you know, ways if you're persistent to sort of have funding for those ideas. So there is definitely, you know, it, it's just the matter of fact in terms of how the business of pharmaceuticals runs versus the business of hospital-based healthcare runs is that just the margins don't exist. If you have a great idea, Uncle, you can't just get up and go to the dean and say, I'd like $10 million and I'm going to do this. Um, and I think, you know, maybe $10 million sounds like an exaggeration, but if I have to go out, um, you know, to the leadership at uh, Bayer and say that here is a great idea for us to be able to do A, B, and C, and I can, you know, I, without getting into the details, you know, there are there are things that I've done at Bayer that have literally nothing to do with the bottom line for the drugs I manage. 
Uh, they're focused on early career development. I have, from my perspective, tried to create programs that give back to the portion of the community I came back from, which is cardiovascular, early career folks who want to do clinical research. That's been my focus, and the company has been wonderfully supportive on that. So, so one piece is the slow-moving nature. The other one, uh, the big one for me is sort of, um, you know, when, once you represent a corporate entity, you have to be quite careful in terms of what you say and what you represent. So um, my, my freedom of speech, so to say, although not in the true First Amendment sense, uh, is somewhat curtailed. I can't go on Twitter and get into, a, a, you know, a, a debate with someone, especially if it involves something that is an asset that my company is related to or manages or or, you know, directly, in fact, uh, commercializes. So that one is a big one for me that from the freedom perspective, I think it definitely um, is in, is um, there's a curtailing there. I would say the one other thing that was maybe a bit of a transition hiccup was that when you move initially, while you don't get from the more senior folks who worked with industry, any of the, you move to the dark side, some of the more, uh, you know, folks who are your contemporaries or, you know, uh, folks who may have, a, um, you know, sort of a jaded view of the industry will sort of look at you with suspicion or paint everyone who's in the industry in one color. Um, and usually it takes a couple of conversations to get beyond that and see, you know, you can sort of demonstrate the value you're bringing. But that was one other one that, you know, initially I'd go to the congresses for the first year and I sort of felt uncomfortable in my skin. Again, I'm sort of sharing the bare emotions with you because I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, for the first year, I was sort of hesitant to um, have my Congress badge boldly say bare. I would try to highlight the MD part. I insert my home address instead of the company address. And, you know, you begin to own your identity after a little bit. So there is a focus. Uh, there is a period where you're a little bit egodystonic um, you know, you're sort of trying to reestablish your identity. Um, so that was definitely a bit of a period of struggle. Um, but I would say that uh, probably didn't last more than six months. You, you sort of find your footing. And, you know, to sort of answer the other part of your question, what has been fantastic is that I'm truly valued for the skill sets I have. I'm truly valued as a talent. Um, I'm valued for my opinion. People come for my opinion on cardiovascular matters, will reach out. Um, there's an almost a scary sense of absoluteness in the advice that people will seek out from me. Uh, there are big decisions made based on advice I would provide. And so it's quite empowering from that perspective. Um, I, I, I feel like also I'm reading much more of medicine. Um, you know, I... I would say as a cardiologist who was in the lipid AFib space, maybe I wasn't necessarily bothered with CAR-T or Keytruda or, you know, what's going on with other fields. But once you're sort of a bit of a generalist on the pharma end, there's an obligation to sort of make sure that you are well-read. So, you know, these are some of the ones that I think stand out in my mind. Um, yeah, no, no, terrific. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing those very emotions. You know, I think each time you are, and I really liked the word, uh, I'm sort of going to <clears throat> imbibe that in my vocabulary as well. You used a very, uh, I think, uh, telling word, uh, you know, at least for me, it was ego dystonic. And, you know, that sort of 
that sort of really paints the picture beautifully as to what you were going through in person when you were trying to find a new identity for yourself. Um, and, you know, it's, it's only natural that, <clears throat> you know, you would take certain, a certain amount of time and, you know, uh, just uh, uh, to, to get comfortable with, with the new waters that you, you've, you've found yourself in. So, no, thank you so much again for going over those uh, raw emotions with us. Um, and, you know, it's interesting um, to me that you mentioned that you've, you've, you've started to read more. I mean, I think the, the one person that comes to mind when you, you, you made that statement is Dr. Topol, Eric Topol. And, um, I mean, he, uh, you know, just um, the way he reads, I mean, it just comes across as a voracious reader of uh, literature, not only, you know, from a cardiovascular medicine standpoint, but, you know, in just like, you know, he reads nature, he reads cell, he reads uh, the New York Times, he reads Annals of Internal Medicine, he reads a lot. It, it just seems like, you know, just if, if anyone is following his Twitter feed, um, you know, I actually is amazing uh, the amount of literature that he shares and it's, it's beautifully highlighted and he's, he's trying to make a point, um, you know, when he's sharing those, um, those images with us. Um, has that changed your perspective um, for uh, cardiovascular medicine, the amount of reading that you do from, you know, with, with regard to like, you know, maybe drug development or, you know, conceptually from other fields? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you learn a lot. And I think, you know, to what you highlighted about uh, Dr. Topol, and again, he's a classic demonstration of why reading is so important. I mean, if you can learn to learn, you know, he's reinvented himself in a field that, you know, no one would consider particularly adjacent. He's sort of the original father, along with Dr. Braunwald, Salim Yusuf, and the folks from Oxford of the clinical trials world, as you, as you recollect, probably. Um, and he's reinvented himself in a completely uh, different space. So absolutely, I think the reading part is very helpful. And especially, um, you know, again, to what he, he does, and, you know, I find myself doing much more than when I did as a physician, is that, I find myself reading books about leadership and also books about, you know, aspects of business, aspects of negotiation. And that all begins to weave into your personality as to how you function, not only as a physician in the few hours I have, but generally as a person, you sort of broaden your horizons. Um, You know, I wouldn't find myself particularly citing Ray Dalio or, you know, Marcus Aurelius a few years back. That would not be me. Um, but at this point now, part of it is just sort of fitting in from the corporate America lingo perspective, but it does enrich you in a very unique way. Um, you know, so so all of that has sort of come together. And I think that reading does change you as a person. I'd like to believe makes you more interesting. I'm sure there are other people who were doing some of these readings, um, you know, even in the course of their clinical practice. But for me, this was a whole new world. I was, I was doing it maybe on and off here or there, maybe read a book that was not medicine related or beyond the New England Journal or Lancet. But now I find that sort of woven into the fiber of who I am and what I tend to look at. Yeah, Samir. So excellent points. Um, first off, you know, before I get to my next question, uh, you mentioned Marcus Aurelius and, you know, I don't know if if our audience or our listeners would be aware of Marcus Aurelius, but I, I, I I'm, I'm assuming, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but is this from Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way? 
So it started from there. And then there is a smaller, uh, it's almost a little handbook, Marcus Aurelius Meditations. Um, it's a little purple colored book. It probably costs a couple of uh, dollars. It's, it's just one of those things. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a quick read, uh, but it has some uh, things that will resonate with people. And again, I, f- I feel like these kind of books, whether it's, um, you know, Marcus Aurelius or whether at the end of the day, and I know this will resonate with you, it's Bhagavad Gita. I think in, in my personal uh, book, these things call out to you when it's time for you to get to them. Um, it's, it's sort of like Vaishnav Devi. I think you, you get the reference, Ankur. Uh, is that when it's time for you to uh, sort of imbibe this into your personality and your life, these books and these things will find you. So I'd like to believe that as much as I sought them out, they sought me out as well. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it is a philosophical um, a sort of murings. Um, the Marcus Aurelius experience is sort of, in some ways, the parallel of the Buddha story where it's, a, you know, an emperor who sort of has a philosophical bent. Um, so I think um, these are things that, uh, again, I, f- I feel it sort of enriches you as a person as you go along. Uh, yeah, no, no, I couldn't agree with you more that, uh, uh, you know, what you seek is seeking you. Um, completely and um, you know I, I you couldn't have said it better uh, you know for the listeners who do not know about Vaishnu Devi uh, Vaishnu Devi is a pilgrimage in in the northern part of India and uh, you know a place where I actually have have frequently visited and you know plan to visit in the near future whenever I go back to India again um, but you know the the idea is that uh, Vaishnu Devi will call you when it's time for you to go there uh, I think a, a similar analogy is that, you know, these books and these readings will find you when you need them the most. So, and I, I f- from a philosophical perspective, I couldn't agree with you more, Samir. I'm a hundred percent on board with that, with that philosophy. Um, and then my, my follow-up question, you know, just to mention when you brought up reading, I was thinking, how do you decide as well? First off, uh, is there a dedicated amount of time that you would spend uh, on a daily basis reading um, and if there is then is there a dedicated space where you read and do you decide what percentage of your reading will be you know Marcus Aurelius kind of reading or reading journal articles so so, so I, I, I don't want to give the false impression that I do this all the time I wish I was better with the habit um, but typically you know I'm a fast reader, so there are these. These are in bursts. I did have a habit uh, when it was in. You know, this is a year where my my company and my franchise has a couple of drug launches, so it's a little bit different. And the COVID uh, sort of working hours are quite fluid at this point, so that has been a bit of a downer on the reading front. But typically, you know, um, I, I do alternate my reading between fiction and nonfiction. You know, I will mix up Hitchhikers. Uh, guide to the galaxy with Ryan Holiday and um, you know just just so that I keep the reading habit up and that's true for pretty much everyone in our family whether it's my wife or my kids is that I feel like if I try to stick to one genre beyond a certain point I feel like I'm reaching a plateau so the the self-help genre I can only do for so long before I feel like I'm just doing it because I have to and so I tend to mix it up. Um, I, I would say on an average, if I had to call it a habit, which unfortunately it isn't, it's more of bursts. It's important to me. Um, um, there's a good word that I learned through uh, Tim Ferriss, who I follow on his podcast, uh, 
Uh, it's a Japanese word called sundoku, which which basically means that you sort of collect books, uh, and only, you know, you don't always get to read all of them. Uh, so I'm a habitual hoarder or collector of books as they come to me. If you said something to me right now, I'd probably order it on Amazon while we are speaking. I may or may not read it immediately, but there's definitely an intent to get to it. Um, so, so those are the kinds of books. I mean, for the academic stuff um, um, or the New England journals and lances, that, that's, that's just the general habit. I spend maybe half an hour or so each day trying to make sure that I, I'll have one article that I'll read in a deep fashion and then the others I'll browse through. Um, but the rest of it is sort of cyclical between fiction and nonfiction. Uh, great. Um, and then um, you also mentioned about uh, learning to learn. Um, how do you do that? How did you do that? Um, is that a fair question? I mean, I, I know there are some like learning techniques, but uh, how do you, how do you, how do you do like, what are the practical tips for our listeners to, to follow that habit? I would say for me, the, the, the largest one is sort of spreading the breadth of what you read. Um, um, and you know, I, I pretty much learn everything from poker, I would say, uh, to the details of baseball, um, to what I know about, uh, medicine or leadership or negotiations or about Silicon Valley, um, or investing for that matter through books. Um, the other medium that appeals to me is sort of the podcast medium and, you know, I think I've probably gone through all of, you know, I, I am a follower of the Tim Ferriss podcast because that's focused on optimization of the human potential. I sort of take the ones which are focused on the medical part with a little bit of grain of salt because I have obviously my own thoughts there. Uh, but the others which are focused on habits uh, which lead to excellence, those are, you know, I find those typically quite useful. Uh, I tend to take mini notes, at least audio notes uh, from those if I can. Um, I don't have the habits that a lot of people have of, you know, 1.5 speed and those kind of things. And so that's the part I miss because my drive to work from here where I'm at in New York to the offices in New Jersey was an hour each way. And that allowed me to get through at least two episodes every day. So that's become a little more uh, chaotic as well. But for me, the learning to learn thing is largely reading based. Um, and then any other resources that are sort of more digital are typically the ones that I leverage. Uh, terrific, terrific. So Samir, um, tell me about um, your life as, you know, parts of your life as a physician. I, I know you you still have some of it um, in your in your life, even though you're at Bayer, but what are some of the other aspects of being a full-time physician that you miss? And then what are some of the aspects that you do not miss? So I think the part that I uh, miss is, you know, uh, so, so the VA, obviously, as you know, uh, is has its own formulary. Uh, and they tend to wait for a very high bar of evidence to incorporate uh, newer medications. So that, that definitely the excitement of something that's in the New England Journal and is approved maybe a few months later, uh, being able to sort of use them in our practices, that's a, that's a little bit lagging uh, for me in my current experience. So I definitely miss that. I think the breadth of the clinical experience that I had at Sana, like I said, I had a clinic, which was a fifth avenue-ish practice. I had a fellows clinic, uh, the usual sort of time on the floor and the CCU. So the whole breadth of interactions with 
with people it's not the same right now it's very focused effort i go in i do a clinic for a few hours uh, and i'm out of there so it, it, the the interaction with the overall sort of hospital environment is very different and i definitely do miss that uh, the big one obviously is uh, the interaction with the with the fellows i think uh, you know they challenge you in a way that uh, nothing else does the same thing goes for residents in the ccu on the floors uh, you know the the learning that uh, you have probably ankur as being in an academic situation is very different from the learning i'm having you know my clinical practice is learning only through what i see you know uh, the volume of patients that i see um, but the the surround sound that you get in an academic institution whether it is grand rounds uh, at sinai is just simply and i'm sure is the same for you at cleveland is just passive diffusion um you know just interacting with people like john halprin uh, you know who was my mentor in the clinic as well dr fuster um you know david adams on mitral valve stuff i mean it is just uh, it's an environment where uh, even if you didn't try you'd learn on every single day basis i mean the grand rounds we have um you know are probably the equivalent of you know any accch or esc panel so that definitely is something i miss tremendously um i do miss being uh, able to as an academic and having my own free voice say something that was completely two standard deviations maybe even incorrect uh, but was my opinion at the point because i have to be extremely careful what i say at this point uh so those are some of the things that i, I definitely miss about sort of um my physician life um the the other thing is camaraderie and friendships i think um at the end of the day um a lot of my uh, really good friends are still the ones that i you know trained with the ones uh, that were with me at uh, at mount sinai because i think the bond there is very different um i do have friends at bear of course uh, but people you know are less tied to the job people move around quite a lot um so people who sort of stay in the same group maybe i have a relationship with but most of the others you know the minute you are uh, sort of spotted as a talent people move you around you move up you move out and so the the relationships are a little bit difficult to come by um so so those are i think the big ones from my perspective uh, that i miss from my somewhat i would say portion of my old life yeah and what is it that you do not miss what do i not miss um i f- i think the part that i don't miss is that i have greater freedom to explore i felt like if i had stayed where i was at uh another 4 or 5 years down i'd probably at this point just be doing atherothrombosis diabetes um i think as people go on in academia their expertise gets deeper and narrower that seems to be the nature of you know high level academic expertise on the other hand for where i'm at it's sort of great for me to be a general expert and be better at people management um so so the ask and the skill set is quite different so i definitely don't miss that portion i don't miss the pressure of having to constantly worrying about putting together grants um to to fund uh, things worrying about where to find the next trial to pay for the coordinator that i have um you know those kind of day to day challenges um whether i'll have the office space that i have for my team or whether somebody else is going to have a bigger nih grant and therefore will get the nicer space and i'll probably get moved up to you know another corner of the building 
though those kind of day-to-day challenges um, sort of I, I don't have to deal with um, anymore and I definitely don't miss any of that. Yes, you know, I mean, fascinating. Um, you know, just a fascinating perspective from from the other side. And um, I, I think our listeners will value your voice and your feedback and, you know, your insights into both, you know, your roles as someone who's transitioned so successfully into, into pharmaceutical industry, industry side. So I did, I did want to sort of bring up at least, you know, a few things, or at least a few beliefs that people hold that I want to be sure that I, uh, if you don't mind, use your platform to clarify. No, no, this is your platform. Go ahead. I mean. Yeah. So, so I think the, the first thing is that, you know, your motivations have to be quite clear. I think if you believe that somehow you're moving to pharma to get rich, I will promise you um, that, you know, yes, if you get to a CEO level, and of course, uh, that's frankly, the numbers at that point is not very different from if you were CEO of a big academic center. Yes, it may be an order of a couple of million here or there at that point. But I think for the most part, um, at least um, a, a good practicing cardiologist, um, I think your salaries would be quite comparable if you move to pharma. Um, so, so the, the life work balance, um, is, you know, of course it's different. Um, I'm, I'm, I, the first thing that somebody who was in my group who was more experienced said is that just remember any decision you're going to make is not tied to a life and death situation. And so that's a helpful perspective to keep, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, the hours are long. Um, I am, uh, you know, working with a company that has headquarters in Europe, um, I do um, on many, many days start at four or five o'clock and the days go to six, seven. So it's not like you clock in and clock out nine to five and you're sort of having a relaxing life or anything of that sort. Yes, you're not taking call, but there are enough instances where you're traveling for work or you're put, so you're going to put in your time. Um, so I want to be quite clear on that, that this is not a, a, a easy gig. Uh, it's not an easy paying gig as as people tend to think about it. The other one I think that's important is that, yes, you know, you are tied to the stock for your incentive. But I, I want to say, and this is, you know, I think generally too for pharma now, and you can look around whether it is Jay Bradner at Novartis or Mark Semigram moved to Myocardia. There are a lot of people, Laura Mori moved to Medtronic. There are a lot of really good, smart people who are in industry because they know they can have a better impact. There's say Katharessen who moved from being pretty much the director of Broad doing fantastic work. And, and, and if folks are following him, uh, you know, his company now is doing fantastically worth therapeutics. So uh, I just want to say that at this point, you know, think about it from a perspective of an alternative. If it is the right one for you, um, you know, think hard about what you want to make out of it. Um, this is no longer the, um, I, I don't want to be a clinician or I want to get out of practice of medicine and this is going to be my way out. Uh, it's no longer really the dark side. The reality of academic enterprise today is as well that if you can work in partnerships, whether it is NIH, across the pond industry, you're going to be much better off in that fashion. Um, so, so I think these are some basic ones that I wanted to get out in terms of how people think about moving to pharma. Um, it is a business. 
we're not here to scam people, but it is a business. And so, you know, people uh, definitely view how things are priced and how they think about opportunities differently than we do in academic or in clinical practice. Um, just a few words about, you know, how you might begin to think about this. I just want to clarify the, the first place uh, that would be reasonable ones for physicians to look for is opportunities in either clinical development or medical affairs um, or uh, pharmacovigilance that's related to safety. Those are the three major avenues just so that for folks who want to think about it, maybe explore those initial opportunities. Clinical development is typically the equivalent of being the PI of a clinical trial. You're involved in protocol writing and sort of the, the, the real science from that perspective. And there are early stage, preclinical, basic science, translational, late clinical trial positions, you know, in, in that space. There's medical affairs, which is where I'm at, which are sort of the translationalists. We work pretty much to interpret the clinical trials for clinical practice and, you know, all those kind of uh, tasks. So sort of bridge the gap between the, the bench scientists and the clinical trialists and the folks who sort of do the marketing and the commercial activities. And then the pharmacovigilance folks are folks who are keeping sort of the safety check in place, are in, are responsible for programs that are related to the safety of the drug in the market. Um, so these are sort of just to quickly get the, you know, paint a picture for you. Uh, if you were considering this career, um, you know, this should not at this point be something that's necessarily just a fallback exit route. There are some really, really smart people who have moved in the last decade or so. And so the face of physicians in pharma has changed uh, to where this is an active career choice rather than exit route. And there's the same for uh, folks who are moving to technology-based healthcare companies or life sciences investing. Um, there are some really smart people who made that choice because again, at the end of the day, whether you're Amy Abernathy, Jess Mega, uh, Malik uh, Mazumdar has moved uh, to Amazon and now to Bioformis. These are all people who are making choices because they want to do the same things that you're doing, Ankur, which is have an impact on healthcare. Yeah, no, terrific. And, you know, I, uh, I mean, I've, I recognize those names, you know, certainly Laura Mori, who has been a, a guest on, on Parallax and, um, you know, but some of the other names that you've mentioned, you know, Amy Abernathy and, you know, Jessica Mega. And then, you know, Malik uh, Majumdar, you mentioned, you know, one another name that I would bring up that, who has made a recent transition to industry is Jeff Popma. He is now the chief medical officer at Medtronic. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, like some, uh, you know, just, uh, just incredible, um, you know, clinician, physician, scientists who have had very successful academic careers at the at the Ivory Towers have sort of moved to industry and are are thriving are, are doing you know really well like yourself um so uh, just incredible perspective and thanks again Samir for sh sharing this with us do you have any closing remarks for people in early career mid career when i mean you sort of were at the cusp of early to mid career which is where i think i'll be next year i'll be into my fifth year, I'm, I've completed my four years. I'm, I'm still, I think, technically early career. I mean, some say early career is seven years. I mean, these are all arbitrary definitions. But when when do you, when do, I mean, I, you know, I think part of this is inner, inner calling. But what I was trying to get at was, you know, when, when do you think people should make that, like, think about that or make that transition 
No, I think that's that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I'll give you my perspective. My perspective is that you either do it when you're early career or then you do it when you are at the stage of Laura Mori or Jess or, you know, Amy Abernathy, right? I think if you do it somewhere in the middle, um, you're likely to be much more disillusioned because I'll just say based on my knowledge of the hierarchy within pharma, you're going to probably end up making a lateral or downward move. And you're also going to be from an age and stage perspective in a situation where the runway for you to get to the top jobs is going to be quite short. So, you know, if you look at Vas, who is even a, you know, breakout success, um, you know, even for somebody like him with a McKinsey background, it's a 10-year journey to the top job at Novartis. And clearly, that's a unique breakaway success story. Most people who are truly in the position of having impact, they've spent 15 plus years uh, on the industry side before they'll be in that situation. Um, or you can do, like I said, uh, when you are at somebody like SEC who can move over to sort of co-found a company and those kind of things. So, so to me, I think, you know, this is a move that should be either relatively early or then when you're well established uh, and you can move in to be a head of drug discovery, you can be a head of, you know, or a CMO level kind of a person, whether it's what, what you just shared about Jeff Popma as an example, or the level at which Laura came in, those would be, you know, Jeff, Laura are, are, are professors at, uh, at Harvard, right? Um, same goes for Jay Bradner, who's at the Novartis Institute's um, so I, I would say it's an early or late one to make because when you come in at the stage that I did, uh, you sort of don't start completely at the ground floor uh, if you have a profile that's plus minus similar to mine. Uh, but, you know, you can expect in a 10-year time frame to get to a place where you would be quite satisfied with your career. Um, I think if you came in, let's say, 10 years in, um, it's going to be difficult for you to come in as an academic and directly land a vice president position. And so you'd probably be at around the same level that I'm at, or maybe one step above. And so you really sort of in some ways lost time, probably income, many other, you know, things that matter to most people at that point. Yeah, no, that just excellent, excellent uh, answer and great insights. And uh, Samir, thanks again so much for your time. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've really learned a lot um, through this conversation, you know, learned a lot about you as a person, but also how you think. And, uh, you know, you're just just a firehose of knowledge and information, which which I think is, um, you know, just a reflection of how, how much you read. So it's it's been it's been a fascinating conversation for me, Samir. So thank you so much for for sparing uh, your time on a late uh, Monday evening. Um, do you have any any feedback for our listeners? Any feedback for Parallax? Um, and you know, any any feedback on who else we should get on the on the podcast to interview? Uh, this is not an advertisement for for anyone to move to industry. These are options uh, for folks to consider who want to take an alternate path to having impact in healthcare. And so, I want to be sure uh, that you know. This, this is not meant to be an advertisement for folks to sort of break away from academia. It is still at the end of the day among the most fulfilling careers you'll have. Uh, if you enjoy doing the research work, if you enjoy teaching, if you have the autonomy, if you have the respect that you need, 
if you find your work fulfilling, you know, you should continue to do what, what, you know, sort of uh, rocks your boat. Uh, and that's, that's really at the end of the day that I think is important for most people to consider before they make any decision. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Samir, thank you so much uh, for, for this and, you know, please share it with your networks and, you know, please uh, share the feedback with me. Thanks again. I appreciate it very much, Ankur. You're obviously doing fantastic work. Uh, I think you're the equivalent of well beyond mid-career for the amount of work you've done, uh, not only here, but also in India. So kudos to you and, and to obviously the podcast that's doing so well. No, thanks. Thank you, Samir. It means a lot to me coming from you. You're very kind. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.